Are you a sneakerhead? Yeah, boy! A baller? Ballin'. Want to know about the hottest brands you can lace up and run with? Well, get ready, because we got all the details right here. Nice take by James. Oh, he stops! LeBron James puts it down in the face of James Johnson. Kevin Durant way outside. Delivers! Kevin Durant from downtown. It's a six-point game. And it goes off to Kobe. Good ride, Kobe. Underneath. Puts his nose on the line again. Makes the basket. He's fouled. Oh, what a play. And Kobe, after he was fouled, after the ball nestled in the net, he waved to a cameraman down in front. Says, take my picture, baby. Sixers running the break. Iverson accelerating to the jam. It's kicks and bricks, where we got game on the streets, and on the court. Money's gotta be the shoes. Shoes, shoes, shoes. You sure it's not the shoes? I'm sure, Mars. Money's gotta be the shoes. And here's your host, Jamel Cutler. This episode of Kicks and Bricks is brought to you by The Den Consulting Agency. The Den is a marketing agency that works directly with firms and provides them with innovative, distinct strategies that will take your projects to the next level. Drive your business and promote your products with The Den today. Consulting, that's what we want, baby. You can find them online at thedenconsulting.com and by phone at 646-770-2507. Welcome to Kicks and Bricks. Today we have a coaching legend. He's coached at GW, Boston U, St. John's, FAU, Coach Mike Jarvis. What's good, Coach? How you doing? I am blessed, thank you. And as you can see from my background, uh, got the water rolling in, the palm trees waving in the air. Um, it's amazing what um, you know what these computers can do. But uh, I am in Florida, enjoying the warm weather, and uh, it's great to be on your show. Man, I wish we can trade places right about now, man. It's, it's about to snow here in New York. Well, I can see you got my – I used to wear a skull cap. Uh, I often told my wife that's one of the reasons why I went bald because I wore it a lot when I was growing up in Cambridge, Mass. So be careful, brother. That's all. Too late, man. Uh, <laughs> it got you, huh? <laughs> I had to come on home. Hey, stay warm. That's the main thing. Forget about how it looks. Stay warm, brother. <laughs> all right. So, um, so we're living in a crazy time in this world, like. How we ever? Like, given the current climate of the world, like, most basketball teams, they're forced to play, like, in empty arenas or, like, in front of maybe, like, 100 fans, if that. Or, like, they're forced to cancel games altogether. Like, as a coach, like, how would you coach during these um, during these times? Well, you know, I, I, I had an experience uh, long before COVID uh, to coach – uh, a team in a, in fact, it was in the championship game uh, years ago when I was at Boston University. We were playing Siena for the championship of the North Atlantic Conference, chance to go to the NCAA. And uh, we had to play in the Hartford Civic Center, which holds about 18,000 people and with no fans. So I know what it's like. And the answer to your question is, uh, I approached it and my team approached it the same as we would any other game, same as we would if we were going out to the park when, to play a pickup game. In other words, you go out to play, 
you play as hard as you can, and the object is to try to win the game. So we did just that. And honestly, I mean, you would have thought that there was 20,000 people in the stands the way the kids played. It was a, in fact, it was, uh, it was a great game. The only, the only bad part about the game was we lost the game at the buzzer when the kids, kids shot up an air ball that they got the rebound off and put in at the buzzer to beat us. They went to the NCAA tournament and we went home. So uh, that was a tough game, but I'll never forget it. What was going on that forced like um, the fans not that forced that the fans was, not to be around? I should have mentioned that uh, we had a measles epidemic, so measles. it was due to the measles epidemic that was going rampant throughout the Northeast. And um, in fact, uh, we had the uh, last couple of games of the season um, were played in front of empty arenas as well. But uh, never forget that day, and uh, it was the measles. It wasn't COVID. But to us, it was just as bad. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, like, to me, I didn't think measles was, like, that bad. But, you know, I guess it was. Yeah, it was. Trust me. And it was, like I said, people were there were people dying. There were many, many people that were affected by it. And, uh, you know, it was uh, it's very contagious. So guess what? They um, they did the right thing. All right. So, like, whether if it's, like, the NBA or college like, do you feel like this year's um, like titles are like tainted a little because of the circumstances? Because you know, there's a situation. Say a team might have an outbreak, and then they they might not make the NCAA tournament, or 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 a pro team they might have an outbreak, and they might lose, you know, like five games or so because of that outbreak, and like they might not make the M- the NBA playoffs. Well, I, the answer to your question is I think that to the fans, I think they would, if their team didn't make it or their team was affected by it, I think they would be tarnished to them. I think to the players, a championship is a championship. You know, you've gone out to the playground and, you know, when you get to the playground, you play. If you win, you keep playing. So you play like every game is your last game. And that's the way most, that's the way athletes are conditioned and trained. You know, they're conditioned to compete at the highest level to be the best that they can can be and just try to win w-i-n win do you feel like that covid put like like a dent on like travel restrictions like in terms of recruiting because i look at a team like kentucky like historically like over the last decade they they usually have like um one of the top teams in college basketball like this year they're struggling like do you feel like covid put a in that as far as um, travel and recruiting is concerned? I would say definitely. Um, and, you know, obviously um, it's probably about the only thing that could stop a, the Kentucky group from uh, having the best, one of the best teams in the country. And uh, it certainly has had its effect. And it probably goes right back to recruiting because kids were not um, out, uh, able to play, to be seen, and to, you know, really show their talents off as much over the last year as they were before. So I'm sure that Kentucky, just like everybody, they probably missed out on some guys. But then again, you know, Kentucky gets guys when they're in grammar school. So, they, <laughs> you know, they usually nothing affects them. And I'm sure that by the end of this year, Kentucky will be back up among the, the you know, the blue bloods. And I see, like, and I see like Duke is kind of struggling too. Like, I really don't feel sorry for them though. 
Well, you know, with Duke, I, I think, you know, in fact, up until last year, uh, it was 20 years, 20 years past from the time they lost a home game to us back in 19, I want to say 99, 2000. They hadn't lost a home game in 20 years um, to a team outside the ACC. Uh, this year, they've lost a couple already. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they probably have the most intimidating uh, home court in the country uh, when the Cameron crazies get in there. And I think that's the thing that's probably affecting Duke as much as anything, because, you know, I think the, the fans only have an effect on how well their players play and how jacked up they get, but they also have an effect on how a game is officiated. So without fans, without the Duke fans in the stands, uh, the, the visiting teams are probably getting a, a little bit more, uh, better, a fairer shake from the officials. You know, I might, I might sound like a hater, but like their struggles is a pleasant surprise to me. But like, and, and to you and a whole lot of other people, trust me, there's a lot of people who hate Duke mainly because they've done so successful for so long, and you know, you, you hardly ever see them out of the top four in the country. But like, but um, but to me personally, I think one of the biggest surprises this year in college basketball is like UConn returning home to the Big East. Like, how did you feel like seeing um like UConn coming home to where they belong? Well, I, I mean, I really felt. I mean, obviously that's where UConn belonged uh, back in the Big East. I mean, they were one of the you know the pioneers. And, uh, you know, they had built uh, such an incredible program. You know, it was in the Big East. And uh, that's where they belong. They belong in the East. They don't belong anywhere else. So, I mean, I felt really good for them and their fans that they were to return to their roots, to where they belong. Um, don't feel necessarily good uh, for some of the teams that are going to have to go there and play. But, uh, you know, Connecticut's... Uh, it's a serious basketball program. Yeah, and and for me, it was so weird seeing them play um, in Orlando in March. Like that just never clicked to me for some reason. Yeah, it was it was weird, and um, but you know, hey, this is 2020, and uh, I tell you, everything seems to be normal. Uh, the abnormal is now the normal. So uh, don't think we'll ever return to the good old days, but I hope we certainly get somewhat back to it. Yep, and you mentioned the the good old days. Like to me, like the good old days was like when the Big East had um, UConn, Louisville, Syracuse, and of course St. John's. Like, but that team that you coached in 1999 that went all the way to the Elite Eight, I believe. You know, that was a um, a special team to me because it was early in my basketball um, in me watching basketball and fully understanding what was going on. And seeing like a team from my hometown like going that far was really special to me. Like, what was it like coaching that group of players? That was a special group. Uh, you know, that was my uh, first year at St. John's, and I inherited uh, Coach Fischella, Fran Fischella, who's now with ESPN and has been. He's a great broadcaster. He recruited a special group of guys that I was able to coach. And, you know, on that team, we had. Um, Obviously, Ron Artest, and you had uh, Eric Barkley, and you had Boosie Thornton, and you had uh, Lavar Postel, and Tyrell Grant. I mean, you just, Reggie Jesse, uh, I mean, we had a great group of guys. Uh, no no Giants. Uh, basically, most of the time, we were 6'6 and smaller. 
but we played big, we played together, and, um, you know, guys fought a lot off the court, but on the court, boy, I tell you what, there was there was no separating that St. John's team. I mean, we, you know, we beat just about everybody, and, um, and the ones that we didn't beat, we scared the heck out of them. So uh, it was a great, great group of guys. I, I really felt that that was a Final Four team. Uh, unfortunately, we, we lost to Ohio State by three in the Elite Eight. Um, on, a, in a, on a you know a couple of questionable plays calls um, and run out test probably had his maybe one of his poorest uh, college basketball games that night. We still almost won, and I think if we had gone to the Final Four, we would have had as good a chance as anybody of winning it all. Uh, and our, our big guy who wasn't really that big, Tyrone Grant, was about six seven and a half, but he was a big man, was hurt. And we had we had to try to do it without him. I think if he had been healthy, I think that was the final fourteen. The next year, uh, we were even a little smaller. We had a six four and a half inch center by the name of Anthony Glover, and that was the year that we went. Uh, we went through the month of February, did not lose a game, um, and we beat uh, Duke, uh, Connecticut, and and um, uh, Syracuse in one week. The same one week, we beat those three powerhouses. And uh, didn't lose a game during the month of February and uh, actually won our first game in March, except the officials uh, helped Miami beat us at Miami. But uh, it's a great, great group. And uh, we lost uh, to Gonzaga in uh, in the tournament. And uh, I thought that team also had a chance of maybe going to the final four, but uh, wasn't meant to be. Do you have like any funny Ron Artest stories from those um, days? Well, the only thing I can tell you about Ron Artest is Ron Artest was probably, you know, along with a couple other guys that I coached over the years, you know, Patrick Ewing, Ramel Robinson when I was in high school, those two guys, and maybe Shantae Rogers at George Washington. Uh, he was maybe the most competitive guy that I've ever coached, and at times the most difficult, most complex. Um, you know, he was dealing with some uh, personal issues and some chemical issues, um, you know, from birth and, uh, you know, he was bipolar at the time and really wasn't diagnosed for it. So he had incredible mood swings. And, you know, anything I tell you about Ronnie is every day, I mean, in practice, I mean, he, I mean, every day was like, you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to war. And he expected every single player, the first and the last man, he was the first, but the last guy to work as hard as he did. And nobody could work as hard as Ron. So he would get very upset. And, uh, you know, there were a couple of times when, you know, he had, uh, he had his moments and uh, explosions. And uh, But he always seemed to come back because he, like the rest of the guys, Eric and Bootsy and LaVar and those guys, they wanted to win. And that was the number one objective, to win. In fact, the first time I ever met with those guys, Ron Attest, uh, you know, was he asked me a question. He said, Coach, he said, do you really think that we can win the national championship. He looked me right in the eye and he was questioning, you know, maybe my belief in them. And I said, Ron, I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe that this team couldn't win it all. And um, that was how we started our relationship. And I'll never forget that. First time I ever met him, he asked me that question. And like also, like during this time, he was like recruiting um, Darius Miles and, and Lenny Cook. Like what would have meant for the program to like kind of land those um, two guys to like to the mix that you already had in place. 
Well, I tell you what, I think if we didn't, we might have won a national championship. We got either one of those guys, particularly Darius, because of his length and his athletic ability. He was the number one player in the country. In fact, I didn't want to recruit him because I really felt he was going to be a lottery pick. And I told my assistants, but uh, I got a call from Darius one day and he said, Coach, he said, You know, he says, I've always dreamt of come playing at St. John's in Madison Square Garden. I want to play for you. And uh, so when a kid, when the number one player in the country calls you up and tells you he wants to play for you, you know, you, you throw maybe common sense out the window. And um, that was, it was great, you know, to have a him on paper, but it was a big low blow when he was drafted as uh-huh. one of the top picks in the NBA and went straight to the NBA because we lost out on some other great players that year. And as far as Lenny Cook goes, you know, Lenny Cook was one of the best high school players to ever play in New York. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for, for Lenny, he didn't go to college. He really needed to. And he, 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 he'll he tell you that himself. Um, he's another kid that, you know, I think throughout his life had, had already decided, you know what, if I go to college, I'm going to St. John's. But I think, uh, you know, the lure of the NBA was just too much for him to, you know, resist. And uh, unfortunately for him, it didn't work out. And uh, but what a, a great kid, both of those guys, great guys, love them both. All right, and like, and um, and you coach like St. John's, like during like the nation, well, during New York's like most trying hour, like in nine eleven, like what was it like coaching like in such an important time in the city's history? Well, I never forget nine eleven. I was in the locker room with my managers. We were preparing a snack for the players who were in fall preseason conditioning. And, uh, you know, I remember one of the managers saying, hey, coach, did you see that plane going to the uh, World Trade Center? And then when the second one went in, I mean, that changed the world forever. And uh, it was, I mean, we had guys uh, in tears. We had guys that were afraid to leave campus that day. And uh, we didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, and then to, you know, we were, thank God we, our school, our campus was in Queens. So we weren't in the city. I mean, honestly, we played a lot, most of our games in Madison Square Garden, but our campus is in Queens. So, you know, I remember going into into Manhattan with my wife one night and uh, we went over by the um, World Trade Center. And in fact, one of the policemen asked, asked us if we wanted to, to go in and we went in. And, and I mean, it was like, it was the most eerie feeling and scene I'd ever seen in my life. And that is, it, you know, you, you look and you see this big hole in the ground and you could smell the smoke and you could almost smell human flesh. It was, and that lasted for a long time and uh, never, ever forget it. And uh, one night the team, we went to dinner with the team in Manhattan and we stopped in a, <clears throat> into an, uh, an antique store and they had pictures and different things in there. And one of the pictures they had, in fact, I have it hanging up in where the, in my hallway, and it was a picture that was taken at the um, uh, at 9/11, and it was basically the last thing that was standing, and that was metal uh, cross. You know, you could actually oh, see wow. the cross. That was the last thing. So we, I bought that, framed that, put that up in the house, never to forget. Um, and that was, I think, God's way of saying, you know what, I'm still here. And like also during that season, like. Um you had um, ESPN cameras was like kind of following you guys throughout that season. I was watching that show the other day. It's up on YouTube. I don't know if, if 
if yeah. you want to watch yourself on um on TV again like what like what was that experience like like none other um you know we agreed to basically allow them to be with us 24 pretty much almost 24/7 i mean i'd wake up in the morning and put on a microphone and i wouldn't take that off uh, until i went to bed at night and um you know the only thing i requested was that they basically do a lot of deleting because there was a lot of things on that that you know you just don't want uh, exposed to the world but uh it was uh, it was interesting and uh, they i mean they were inside i mean in, basically inside of our locker room and in, with the team i mean traveled with us ate with us uh, did everything but sleep with us and uh, they put together an incredible documentary um, it was 2 hours in length two 1 hour shows and uh, it was unlike anything i think that ever been done uh, with a with any team at any level uh, it was that in depth i think the closest thing to it might have been the uh, documentary that they did on the chicago uh, bulls with jordan uh, you know and, and company but uh, it was a first uh, of real 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 live uh, what do they call it uh, tv um, um, what's the name? What's the term they use? Reality TV. Yeah, reality. That was reality sports TV. Yeah, and you and you really don't see shows like that no more, like outside of Hard Knocks on HBO. Well, we might see something, but most of them are scripted. That that was totally unscripted. Uh, that's what made that so real and so special. In fact, it might have, for some people, it was too real. I mean, it really. I mean, I think it scared some people and some folks didn't really want to see, you know, um, the truth uh, that as it unfolds within the, the lives of, of kids, whether they be black, white, poor, rich, who doesn't make any difference. It was a it was a hard knocking reality show and um, it went from beginning to end. And in fact, that particular year, um, um, we um, ended up losing to, I believe, Wisconsin in Washington, D.C. Um, in March, of, uh, April, actually, of that year. My daughter, I gave birth to my first grandson uh, as we arrived for that championship um, uh, for the NCAAs. And uh, we also went to a funeral. Marcus Hatton's um, uh, grandmother had passed away, so we went to a funeral in Baltimore. It was, oh. What a, what, what a ride, you know, from Alaska uh, to begin the season to Washington, D.C. to end the season. And also, I saw um, your grandson was born during that. Um, That's right. During that um, um, dot, too. That's right. So, At the very end, uh, as yeah. we as we landed in Washington, D.C., my grandson, my daughter Dana was giving birth to my grandson, Jeffrey, who is now a freshman at St. John's. I mean, that's. That's how oh, wow. things go. So um, uh, it was, uh, like I said, it was a, it was quite a time in the in in, in not only my life but my family and uh, you know St. John's as well. What do you think about right. the current state of the program now? Well, I think with Mike Anderson as the head coach, I think that St. John's is going to be back. Um, he's an excellent coach, a great guy. Uh, his players you know, resemble uh, him in the sense that they compete like crazy. They get after you on defense. And I think he just needs, you know, a couple more guys. And um, I think he's going to have St. John's back in the tournament. And 
winning games like we did and, um, you know, maybe even exceeding what we did. Who knows? I really like that kid, Julian um, Champagne. I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name right. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, but um, but I think, like, he's the – like he's a future pro exactly. in my book. Yeah, he's a good player. You know, you just sometimes hope they don't get so good that they're out of there. They're in and out, so you can't really build. That's the problem with, you know, with the way things are. You can't really build a team anymore unless you're recruiting, getting five-star recruits every year, and you're getting two and three of them, you know, like Kentucky and do. Yep. Um, so, you know, a program like St. John's, it's, it's really difficult. Um, to know to get there, but then it's even more difficult to stay there. Like earlier this year, um, the Big East, we lost um, one of our own when um, Big John Thompson passed away. Like, what is your favorite memory of um, Big John? Well, you know, John, I remember John, uh, Big John, when he was actually at Providence. Uh, we used to, I was in high school when I was playing ball, and we used to and in fact, the first couple of years in college, we, we used to work out at the Cambridge Community Center. And I'll never forget the night that I first saw John Thompson. I mean, I don't know if I ever saw a guy that big, but I remember, you know, him coming into the community center when he was a player. And those guys used to play, and I remember watching him, and he was a pretty good player, you know. And uh, But I remember him recruiting Patrick. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think he really thought that he was going to get Patrick. Um, but all the, you know, but what Patrick was looking for and what his mother was looking for was there in, at Georgetown. His mother wanted him to play for a black coach uh, that could, you know, serve as his substitute dad if necessary. Um, Patrick wanted to be in an atmosphere similar to Cambridge, Washington, D.C., provided that. And uh, they did a great job selling him on D.C. and, you know, the, the city and just how comfortable he could be there and the fact that also he could be the center piece to building their program and um, which he was. And uh, so I, I just, like I said, I remember how John, you know, um, recruited Patrick and I remember him calling me every Sunday night and saying, coach, you sure now we got to, we, we can get this guy and we can get this young man. And I'd say, coach, just relax. I, I think you got a good shot. Um, at the end of the day, Patrick chose, you know, Georgetown because he felt the most comfortable with John and with, with uh, Washington, D.C. And I think um, Patrick, he's doing yeah. a good job at keeping his legacy alive over at Georgetown at being a head coach. I agree with you. In fact, I was watching him coach last night against St. John's and an overtime game that they, that they won. And I was really happy for him and you know, that's a tough game. I, like I said, I know my grandson was rooting for St. John's. And, you know, I'm rooting for Patrick, and I'm hoping St. John's plays well. Uh, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm glad I'm glad that uh, either way it would have been a good win, but I'm glad that Patrick got the win and texted him after the game and told him now my wife can go to sleep. So he texted <laughs> back and said, thank Mrs. J, tell her I love her, and uh, tell her to sleep well. We got the W. Um, why do you think it's like taking Patrick so long to get like a head coaching opportunity? Like, like, like for me personally, I think the Knicks should have at least gave him an interview. But, um, but I think that's part of the reason why they curse now. Well, it could be. Um, you know, I, I think that sometime, you know, it's funny in, in basketball. 
when you look at the coaches throughout the history, there have been very few giants, guys seven footers that end up coaching. I think it's almost like a mentality that you have to be a smaller guy, a point guard to be able to coach. And I don't think Patrick ever got the respect for his basketball intelligence that he deserved. And a lot of that had to do with, you know, the fake news that surrounded him when he was uh, in high school and college, you know, when people were, you know, uh, trying to degrade him, trying to pull him down. And I think that a lot of that stayed with him. And basically, I don't think people looked at Patrick the way that they really should have through the right lens, because there wasn't a, I've never ever had a player that was more intelligent than Patrick, that was more in tune to the game and didn't have as good a feel for the game. So, I mean, I think Patrick's going to be a great coach. I think he'll have an opportunity at some point in time to coach in the NBA, whether or not he chooses to or not, that's going to be up to him and how well things are going in Georgetown. But yeah, I think he's doing a really good job. He's got his kids playing solid fundamental basketball uh, and he's got them playing hard like he used to, but they'll never play as hard as Patrick. Like what type of what type of player was he in high school? Like incredible, incredible. I mean, he found ways to help his team win. He didn't care about how many points he got. You know, he didn't. It wasn't about points. It was about victories. And uh, anytime, like. If, like, um, if it was a game where we needed him to get 20, 30, he would. If it was a name, you know? Mm-hmm. Like um, Boston, like in the early 80s, they had Patrick on the high school level. It, and then, you know, there were nights when he would get 25, 30 rebounds, block 10. Incredible. All right, so like um, back in the early 80s, like Boston, um, they had Patrick – on the high school level, and then you had the Celtics in the NBA, like winning championships. Like, do you have any memories of Red Auerbach? Well, Red Auerbach was one of my mentors. Uh, I got to know Red Auerbach when I was working with one of his players, uh, Tom Satch Sanders, who coached, who played on nine world championship teams with the Celtics and coached the Celtics. And uh, so I got to know Red View. Uh, Red was a, an alumna, alumnus of GW. He used to come to our practices and games. So we became very good friends. And uh, we'd have every Thursday, I think it was afternoon, he'd have uh, a group of guys get together for Chinese food, which he loved. Got a chance to talk a lot about the game, but more importantly about people and how to motivate and how to manage uh, and work with people. And uh, Red Abax just, I mean, a great guy. And I had a couple of sayings that I'd like to share with you. The first time I ever met him was at the Springfield Hall of Fame. And he says, you know, I like the work you're doing with um, that young kid, Ewing. He's going to be a great player someday. And he says, you know, I may not always be right, Mike, but I've never been wrong. And he says, I'm not going to be wrong about that. And he certainly wasn't. He ended up being one of the greatest players of all time. And then the other thing that I remember Red saying to me, he said, you know, he says, the only time you will lose as a coach is when you don't learn something from the game. So you never lose, he said. You're always going to win because you're going to learn something from the game, even if the other team scored more points than you. And I'll never forget those couple of things he shared with me. 
those are the kind of things that Renauerbach shared with people that he liked. When you were growing up in the Boston area, were you a Celtics fan? Of course. How could you be anything but? Uh, my brother Richard used to save, God rest his soul, he used to save up money so he could buy two tickets, one for him and one for me, and take me over to see the Boston Celtics. Uh, first game I ever saw was Bill Russell's first game. It was in 1956. And I think he got about, I don't know, he must have got 50 rebounds one night. And um, so I fell in love uh, watching the Celtics, watching Red Auerbach coach, watching Bill Russell and the rest of the Celtics, Bob Cousy, the Jones brothers, uh, Shaman, all those guys play over the years. And um, listening to their great announcer, uh, Johnny Most. So that's my... That's my theme song, Rocky. <laughs> Let me turn that off. Sorry about that. That's nah, no problem. Uh, but but anyhow, um, I grew up on Boston Celtics basketball, as as did all of us. And yes, that's still my obviously my favorite team. So like during oh, so like during his height, like Bill had like a love hate relationship with the city of Boston because of like race relations in the area from. Yes. From your point of view, like, what was the racial divide like in Boston? It was serious. Um, you know, Boston, um, it's still, you know, very. it's, it's still a, a kind of an interesting place. I mean, it's a great place to visit. It's a tough place to live sometime, uh, especially if you weren't born and raised there. A lot of people get intimidated in different parts of Boston because it's each part of Boston has its own little city. In fact, uh, there's like six different uh, sections of Boston with their own city halls. And uh, it's almost run like, you know, uh, like the uh, the mob, you know, in each part, of the, each part of the town, whether it's the Italian section, the Irish section, the, the uh, Chinese section, the black section. And that's how the city has, has basically been broken up and, you know, divided. And, and, and I think, and that's what's caused, that has caused over the years a lot of, you know, a lot of racial uh, unrest and problems just because of the fact that, you know, folks were very, very um, cautious of where they went, and where they lived. So, you know, if you were a certain race, certain religion, you lived in a certain part of the city. And if you weren't, you stayed out of there. And uh, so it was an interesting place to grow up. But if you grew up there, you could you could you could basically, I think, survive anywhere. So what do you think about, like, the modern-day Celtics? Like, I, because I think Jason Tatum, he's on his way to becoming, you know, a top-three player in the league. I wouldn't disagree with you. I mean, I think that uh, they've got some exceptional young players. Um, they've got a really uh, bright and uh, sound coach. They've got great management. And, of course, they got the Boston Celtics fans and the mystique and the magic that goes with the Boston Garden, uh, now called the Fleet Center. But it's a, it's still Boston. I mean, Boston's still one of the best franchises in basketball. Do you like the old Boston Garden better or um, or the current arena that they play in now? Well, obviously, I would like the old because as a little fat kid running around playing basketball, um, we used to uh, play games in the Garden before the Celtics. And, uh, you know, when I was in high school, uh, a lot of our champ championship games were played in the Boston Garden, and uh, 
And that's, in fact, where John Thompson saw Patrick Ewing play for the first time. We were playing uh, in the state semis, and uh, he saw him play. He was sitting with Red Auerbach, and he saw Patrick play, and that was it. And uh, so I loved the old Boston Garden, you know, with the uh, crickety floor, and, you know, you had to know exactly where to bounce the ball, otherwise you might lose it. And uh, it was magical. Uh, they it held 13,909 people. And uh, there were nights when our high school teams had more people than they had seats. So I'll never forget the Boston God. And I'm pretty sure Red Red was scheming on the way to get Patrick on the Celtics. Oh, let me tell you something. If anybody could have pulled it off, it would have been him. And years before, somehow he would have got Patrick. You know, there was a time when they had the territorial draft in the NBA and during those days, Patrick would have been a Celtic, but uh, wasn't meant to be. And it's probably just right. as well, you know, to be honest with you. He came to the right place. So Yeah. <laughs> All right, can you give me, like, your your top five players in the NBA right now? Right now? Oh, yeah. it's tough right now. I mean, obviously, if you – right now, you, I mean, obviously, I mean, you, among your top five, obviously, LeBron has got to be one. Uh, Giannis uh, has got to be one. Um, I would say after those two guys, then, you know, you've got probably Curry, um, you know, whether you like them or not, you got Harding and then you can take almost anybody else and you'd have a heck of a team, you know, with those guys. I don't know if uh, Curry and Harding could play together, but it'd be interesting to see. (laughs) Um, Who do you think is winning the championship this year? Do you have the Lakers repeating or do you see – like Golden State kind of coming back to the throne or somebody new? I don't know. I mean, a lot of people think maybe New Jersey got a chance. Um, I don't know about that. but um, And I think, you know, you can never count Boston out. So, I mean, Boston, Miami, those teams are solid. Um, you know, and they gave everybody a run last year. There's no reason why they can't do it again. But L.A. would be the favorite, I think. You know, I'm not supposed to root because I work in the media, but the New Yorker in me, just can't pick Boston winning. Um, no, of course you can't. <laughs> I no. just, I just can't do it. No, of course you can't. <laughs> so, like a few years ago, you wrote a book, like the Seven C's of Leadership. Are you like planning a sequel to um, that book? I don't know. It depends. You know, I mean, uh, every year you live, you know, you learn, and uh, I'd like to hope uh, and pray. Right now, I've been um, teaching using that book. Um, while teaching a leadership course at South Florida Bible College uh, in South Florida in Deerfield Beach. Um, so I'm enjoying that. Um, and, um, you know, I'd like to think that maybe there's a book in me that hasn't been written. Um, you know, it's kind of a nice feeling to see someone reading your book and uh, any book that, you know, usually you write, you end up writing stories about your life and about, you know, how different people have affected it. So I've been touched by so many great people that I really feel there's always a need to share. All right, so listen. All right Coach. So I want to thank you for, for joining us today and giving us your insight um, on your story coaching careers. Um, do you have any upcoming projects that you're working on? Yeah, you know what? Right now I'm working with a company called HS1 Global. It's a... Um, company that is trying to provide the world with PPE uh, equipment, whether it be masks, gloves, gowns, 
um, uh, rapid tests. Um, but a gentleman by the name of Jean Benoit Vieira uh, started this company. It's relatively new, but it's it's a it's a global con- company, and it's really des- has been set up to do the right thing for the right people and, and ser- be re- of real service to the average uh, people that live in this world of ours and deal with this not only the, the pandemic that's here now, but whatever else might come afterwards. Um, you know, to serve those people that are serving others, those people that have to put their lives on the line every day when they go out and, and take care of people, you know, who are out there uh, affected by the pandemic. So been working with them, been basically, um, uh, my wife and I are working with uh, the leadership development team and we're also, uh, uh, whenever possible, uh, directing people to the company so that they can help fulfill the needs of our, of our citizens and throughout the world. All right. Before I let you go, I have to ask you, um, are you taking that vaccine? You know what? I don't know uh, whether I'm going to or not, um, to be very honest. I mean, I could lie to you and I'm not going to, um, you know, I haven't taken a, a flu shot in a while, um, you know, and uh, personal reasons, uh, uh, you know, um, I'm not really sure. I, I, if I don't take it, it won't be because um, President Trump, you know, uh, uh, had anything to do with pushing it out. It certainly won't be because of that. Um, it'll just be because of, you know, my at times reluctance to to take the vaccine. But um, I, at the end of the day, I probably will, to be honest with you, and I probably will just so that my grandchildren um, more fear taking it. You know, I'll probably take it too, but I just have to wait until like maybe by the summertime. You, know, but like I'm not being their first guinea pig. No, no. I like I said, there's there's so many different stories. I mean, you know, if you believe half half the stories that are out there about the positive possibilities and the effects that it may have and how it may be used by the enemy, so to speak, you know, you, 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 you know, you get a little skeptical, but at the same time, you know, we got to, at the end of the day, we got to do what we think is right. And we got to lead by example. So I'll see what happens. All right, coach. Well, well, thank you for joining us, man. I really do appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the invite. Thank you, Jamel. And uh, is that how you pronounce your name? Yep. You got it. Thank you. And uh, first try too. Yeah, 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 that's what happens when you teach. You know, you t- teach high school for seventeen years. You better be able to pronounce names. And uh, thank you. You did a great job. I, I love the way in which you engage uh, the guest. And you know, uh, so many times the host uh, does all the talking. And uh, but in in the good hosts uh, present the, the questions and the thoughts and let the let the guests speak and that's what you did I appreciate it very much I like to be the point guard man just just keep keep it keep it up okay stay warm stay safe and uh, continue to share okay the gifts that God gave you All right. All right. thank you coach thank you see ya see you man